have you turn to this book. And as we conclude it, I want to just say this, that yesterday I had such an amazing epiphany of the meaning of the entire book. And I want to share that with you. And I want to pray tonight that you will gain somehow what the Spirit of God deposited in my soul yesterday. Father, I just thank you tonight. As we sit in your presence, Lord, I pray open up our hearts. That our spirit, our innermost being, our soul, the true essence of who we are, will hear your voice. That we will have that same illumination of your spirit. We will have that epiphany in our hearts. We will gain <coughs> that, un <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that understanding of your word. That it will seize us, it will grip us, it will apprehend us. Father, that it will be used to change us and to help us to become more like you. Father, I thank you that you, you know, spent a lot of time crafting and building and helping us understand through Job's experience who you really are. And so, Father, I pray tonight that we will get a glimpse of it. And I thank you for that in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. amen. Leonard Holt was a paragon of respectability. Middle-aged, hardworking, he was a lab tech. He worked for a paper mill company in Pennsylvania. He had been a Boy Scout leader. He was an affectionate father. He was a member of the local fire brigade, a regular church attender. He was actually admired as a model in his community. But that image exploded one day in a planned hour of bloodshed as he, a proficient marksman, stuffed two pistols in his coat pocket drove to his place of employment, moved slowly through the shop, and began shooting with calculated frenzy. He killed several co-workers as he's unloaded 30 rounds into the lives of people, some of them whom he had known for over 15 years. Bewilderment swept the community. Puzzled policemen and friends finally found a train of logic behind this brief reign of terror. Deep down within the heart of Leonard Holt rumbled a giant called resentment. His quiet exterior was seething with anger. The investigation yielded the following facts. Several victims had been promoted over him. Some had quit carpooling with him because of his raging, reckless driving. The man was brimming with anger and resentment that could no longer be held back. Eventually, his face was plastered on Time magazine, and there was a caption that kind of told the story. In these three words, it said, responsible, respectable, resentful. How do we handle life's injustices? How do we handle life's disappointments? Obviously, Leonard Holt took no responsibility for what was happening in his life. He didn't process these things, but rather chose to be angry and to blame people for what was happening in his life. Rather than forgive and receive grace in his soul, he allowed anger and hatred to consume him. You know, one of the great concerns I have is, as, as believers that we can actually know the truth we can have an outward facade of doing the right thing, but inside, there can be great disappointment. There can be great frustration. 
We could be deeply upset. We can be angry at God. We could be living a life of despair. But yet, outwardly, we look like everything is okay. But inwardly, a major problem is happening within our soul. Here in the final chapter of the book of Job, we are about to see the end result of Job's devastating experiences. Job was filled with anger towards God. Now, you may not know the story. Maybe you do, but let me just give us a brief synopsis of the book of Job, and it'll make sense to us. In the very first two chapters, we have a glimpse into another realm. We have a glimpse into the heavenly realm where the angels are coming and assembling before God. And one of the angels who had fallen, whose name was Satan, appeared with these angels. As they're there, God says to Satan, he says, where have you been? And Satan answers him, well, I've been over the whole earth to and fro. God says, oh, by the way, if you've been traveling like that, you've probably run into my friend, my servant. His name is Job. There's nobody else like this guy. He's blameless. He does what's right. He fears me, and he avoids evil. And Satan says to God, and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing here and using it in my own words. He says, well, you know, it's no sweat off of, you know, Job's nose or whatever because, you know, Job, he's got everything going for him. He's one of the richest guys in the world. He's got, every, I mean, the way you're blessing this guy, anybody would serve you. I mean, you're treating this guy with kid gloves. I mean, I'll tell you what, if your life wasn't so good for him, he, was, he would actually curse you to his face. And God says, well, what do you, what do you suggest? He says, let me, let me get my hands on him. And I tell you, there's going to be problems and he's not going to look so good. And so God says, okay, but don't touch him physically. And so we read in chapter one that, you know, God allows Satan to attack him and he literally, there's a tragedy. He loses his 10 children to tragedy and all of his wealth is stripped from him. We pick up the story in chapter two, another council, Satan's there again. God says to him, where have you been? He says, well, yeah, I've been all over the earth. He says, well, hey, listen, you've provoked me against my servant Job, but I'll let you know something. He's still blameless. He doesn't, he's not cursing me. Yeah, well, Satan says, you know, anybody will do this. I mean, skin for skin. I mean, you haven't touched this guy yet. Yeah, he's lost his kids. Yeah, he's, he's lost his wealth, but you know, he's fine. He's healthy. You're still looking out for him. God says, all right, you can touch him physically, but don't take his life. And then we read that he gets this devastating illness. He's crushed. As a matter of fact, everything in Job's life has been stripped from him. He's in an honor-shame-based culture. He's lost his position. He's lost his friendship. His wife says, your breath is offensive to me. I can't take it anymore. Living with you is a nightmare. And she kicks him out of the house. He's living in an ash heap. His friends show up. For one entire week, they say nothing. They're overwhelmed. They've never seen anybody look so bad. Job looked, he was hardly recognizable. They were overwhelmed with grief looking at this poor guy. And then we pick it up in chapter three. Job starts to complain. He starts to lament. He starts to pour out the bitterness that's in his heart. He's angry. He's frustrated. And so for the next 27 chapters, Job goes on and on. And there's this dialogue between Job and his three friends. And so they begin to focus in and say, listen, Job, if you would just get straight with God, if you would just repent of the sin you're committed, you know, God would forgive you and he'd restore your life. You're just a sinner, Job. Job goes, listen, I don't know about that kind of stuff. He says, I didn't do anything wrong. It's God. He's not being fair to me. And so we have this amazing engagement throughout the book of Job. You know, Job kind of feels, you know, haven't I done the right thing? Haven't I served God faithfully? And yet all kinds of tragedy and sorrow have invaded my life. 
Where is God in all of this? Where is God? And so he's upset and he wants to have God come and he wants to confront God. When you read through the book of Job, it becomes apparent that Job is struggling with a wrong concept of life and God. Like all the characters in the book, they believe that if a person lives right, then God's obligated to bless. And if a person does wrong, well, of course God's going to punish us. But when you've done the right thing and everything's messed up in your life, you're going, hey, God, you're letting me down. And this is what we call retribution theology. And by the way, there's an element of truth to this stuff. We know that if we do the right thing, we are blessed. We know that if we do the wrong thing, we'll suffer. And so it's not like this is not true. The problem that the book of Job is teaching us is that this is not the primary principle by which God is operating and ruling the universe. That's the issue. And so in the midst of amazing pain and suffering, God comes to Job and confronts Job with his attitude. Job's response to God will help us process things in life that you and I don't really understand. And as the final two speeches of God reveal, there are many mysteries that we don't get. You know, I was kind of thinking about this. I have a two and a half year old granddaughter. If I tried to explain tonight to her what I'm saying to you, what do you think she would be thinking? It would be a little over her head. I could hear her saying to me, Poppy, come, sit. Come, let's play. I mean, that's the frequency that she's on. There's a little bit of a gulf between what I'm understanding and where she's at. And folks, if you think that's a big jump, just think about the jump that there is between ourselves and Almighty God. It is amazing, the gulf. We're not in the same league as God. And so when God is operating in the universe, the way he's doing and dealing with things, let's just face it. He knows what's best for each one of our lives. He's created each one of us for a purpose. Do you believe that tonight? As a matter of fact, we, you know, it's not that God's obligated to do our will. God created us for us to do his will. And what God wants us to do sometimes looks a little differently than what we think we want to do. Anybody figure that out? You know, we have conflict with that in our own soul. We get frustrated. God, why can't I do this? And God goes, that's because I didn't design you to do that. You know, this is what I've designed you to do. And so I think when we start coming to the place in our life where we can accept what God is doing in our lives, I believe we will be far more content. So Job now repents from his attitude towards God during his suffering. We know that he was angry with God. And we know that he said that God was being unjust to him. Now remember that Job's sufferings were not a result of any sin on his part. We've already stated that in chapters 1 and 2. God himself said Job was blameless. And he avoided evil. But what Job is going to repent of in chapter 42 is his attitude after he suffers. I love what August Conkle writes. Job had now found wisdom, which led him to repentance and submission before God. He now understood that he could not dictate to the creator what was just and right for his life. God's response to Job in his speech teaches us some very important lessons. Job's approach to suffering is wrong. 
How many know that's true many times in our lives? Our approach to our sorrows is not always right. As a matter of fact, what is the right attitude? If complaining and criticizing God is not the right approach, how do we handle the moments of struggle or doubt and suffering that come into our lives? And here is where this book really teaches us some very powerful lessons. Life is not just about doing right things and expecting right results. Life is really about discovering God's grace. That's what it's about. And what do I mean by that? Well, we need to realize that our lives are lived in grace. Do you recognize today that everything you have is by the grace of God? See, you know, sometimes we look at our lives and we think, well, you know, I worked for this. Yeah, but God gave you the opportunity to work. God gave you the strength to work. God gave you the mind to work. How many know not, not everybody's elevator hits the top floor? You know? And so, you know, we can sit down and say, well, hey, you know, I've done this and that. Yeah, well, if God didn't help you, you wouldn't be there. As a matter of fact, we could actually be living in another part of the world where we could be working 10 times harder and seeing half the results or even less. We need to be so thankful for what God has done in our lives, but sometimes we forget that because, you know, hey, listen, we're doing the right stuff. You know, somehow we've done the right things and we think, you know, that we're obligated to have these things come into our lives. Folks, we need to get a vision of how gracious God has been to us. And I'll tell you something, when you have this vision of God's grace, it transforms your thinking. You move from a person who's been complaining and frustrated to someone who is filled with thanksgiving and gratitude. It is the truth, because now you understand that all that God has done for you has been by his amazing grace. Um, So, when life doesn't go the way we want it to, What is the right response? Submission. This is an act that expresses our trust in God's goodness and love to us. Dr. Longman says something very insightful. He says, this view of submission and ultimately of silence before God does not contradict, as previously mentioned, a proper reflection or a faithful questioning of of God allowing things to happen in our lives as we see in the lament in the book of Psalms. But it does point to God's ultimate desire for those who suffer. That after we've asked God, we become silent and we submit to what God is doing in our lives. Upon Job's repentance, chapter 42 brings out this amazing restoration. As I've already pointed out, Job is not repenting because he sinned, causing him to suffer. Job is repenting Because in his suffering, his attitude got sour and bitter towards God, and he began to falsely accuse God. He's repenting from that attitude. And the Bible makes that very clear. In a word, he repents of the growing bitterness of his spirit and his accusations that God is unjust. He turns away from his earlier intention to bring charges against God for treating him unfairly. So here in the epilogue, we find an amazing restoration, not only of Job, but of Job's friends. And they all enter into an amazing relationship with God. But you know, this chapter brings some confusion. I had one of our congregants say to me a number of months ago, he said, you know, pastor, I don't like the end of the book of Job. I go, why is that? He says, it's not true to life. He says, you know, not everything works out, you know? 
Not everything turns out good. Not everybody is restored. So <coughs> a lot of people struggle with the book of Job. Let me just point out, as uh, Dr. John Walton from Wheaton College points out, he says, you know, many people have been baffled by the conclusion, and for a number of reasons. Number one, restoring Job's prosperity does not erase the suffering he experienced. So a lot of people go, you know, yeah, it's nice that God did that for him, but look at all the hardship Job had to go through. And I'm not that really that impressed. You know, other people say, well, you know, providing Job with more children does not heal the grief of those he lost. Yeah, it's nice to have 10 more kids, but what about the ones he lost? People point that out. Or here, the third one, restoring Job's prosperity seems like, you know, God's undoing everything he's been trying to teach with this retribution principle thing. You know, if we do the right thing, we get the right results. Well, Job now repents, and now all of a sudden, everything's restored. You know, it makes little sense that God would do that. Yet, as he continues to explain, to grasp the appropriateness of the conclusion, we must bear in mind the central concern of the book of Job, which is really what? What was really going on? What's the central issue? Well, it's the issue where Satan, the challenger, claims that it's poor policy for righteous people to prosper. And Job claims it's poor policy for righteous people to suffer. However, God, Job, sorry, however, Job maintains that righteousness and not prosperity ultimately matters. As a matter of fact, Job nowhere asks that his prosperity is returned to him. What Job is asking is that he will be vindicated, that people will find out, hey, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't deserve this. Job demonstrates that it's possible to be righteous for righteousness' sake. He commits to serving God even though he's lost everything. By restoring Job's pro uh, prosperity in the epilogue, God is making a clear statement that he's going to rule the universe as he did previous to the whole contest. Job now begins to understand his prosperity differently. Because you see, Job had probably felt, you know, I'm doing the right thing and God is blessing but now Job realizes that's not why God was blessing. You see, this retribution principle is so deeply ingrained inside of us. This is the thing that struck me. We're hardwired this way. We feel like if I do the right thing, I'm gonna get the right results, and if I mess up, I expect to be punished. We're just hardwired that way. But it's so hard for us to grasp that God isn't dealing with us based on that but that God is dealing with us based on his grace, that God is actually giving humanity what we don't deserve. And if God ever decided to just, you know, deal with us based on justice, the whole planet would be in trouble. Not just us, everybody would be in trouble. But every day, how God is dealing with us is by his amazing grace. He is giving you and I what we do not deserve every single day. And that's the essence of this message. Man, that's exciting. What Job discovers is prosperity is not a reward he deserves or one that God is obligated to provide. It is rather a gift. And when you and I get it, when you and I begin to understand, you know what I have today has all been given by your grace. It's a gift from you, God. It changes our whole perspective. You know, some of us are working like Trojans to get ahead. You know, think about it. Yeah, it's important to work hard. I think there's a place for that. But you can work really hard and go nowhere. 
There are a lot of people that are outworking Canadians in the world, and they have a lot less than we have. I'm going to tell you that right up. So don't think, you know, hard work is getting me where I'm going. It's God's grace that's providing for you. And you and I need to get a hold of that in our hearts. I love what August Conkle says. It might seem that the conclusion of the book is a reversal of everything that the book has said and that it appears that Job's restoration is proportionate to his righteousness. But it is wrong to think that, this, that his is nothing more than the operation of the principle of retribution. In light of God's speeches, the restoration cannot be understood as a manner of divine blessing for Job's righteousness. Rather, it shows that God provides for those who submit themselves to him. More importantly, the blessing is an expression of God's grace towards those who trust him. It's not a reward on the basis of ethical obligation. Divine grace in human affairs cannot be predicted or controlled. What is he saying? Guys, you and I cannot manipulate God. You and I can't say, well, I'm gonna do the good and then God's obligated to take care of me. Do you know, do you know, when we, you know how I know we believe that this is the way we operate? The moment I say, God, I don't get what you're doing in my life. I don't think you're treating me fairly. Do we ever say, say that? Let me tell you how we say it. The moment I say, God, why is this happening to me? I'm questioning God's justice in my life. Do you see how quickly we move to this principle? It's just almost an automatic default inside of our soul. You know, we're not content. We're not happy with God. We're frustrated at what God's doing in our life. Who are we to question God? You know, we don't have, really, God knows what he's doing. Do you know, God's not gonna treat you like your neighbor. God's not gonna treat you like your spouse. God's not gonna treat you like anybody else. God's doing something unique and specific for every person in this room. God is showing different expressions of his grace in all of our lives. But you know what we do? We look at our neighbor and go, God, why are you doing that for him? What about me? The moment I say that, I'm back on that retribution thing again. You see how quickly we default to it. You know, that's why I'm trying to get this point across. That's why this book is here so we can understand something. God is treating us according to his grace. Now let's take a look in the book. We see this submission to God's grace begins to facilitate restoration. I'm gonna look at two quick examples. Number one, the first example is the restoration seen in the lives of Job's friends. You know, God was not happy with their attitude. God was not happy with their thinking. As a matter of fact, their understanding of God is all wrong because, they, because, of, because of it, they have become critical of Job, who is now an innocent sufferer. They are judging Job based on his circumstances and falsely accuse him of doing wrong. Their understanding of God is strictly as a judge that can be trolled by maintaining a certain behavioral pattern. You know, we're trying to manipulate God. We like to think that we're in control of God, that we can actually shape how God's gonna behave. As a matter of fact, I think a lot of North American preachers and churches believe that if God's obligated to do certain things, if we do certain things, I wanna tell you something, God's not obligated to do a thing. Get that out of your head. That's wrong theology. That's a wrong understanding. God is not operating out of what we're doing. God is operating out of his grace. We need to get this. It's so hard to wrap our minds around his grace. I tell you, it's so liberating, but it's so difficult for us to get this message. You know? So these guys are basically saying we do what's right and God's obligated to bless. 
You know, if we do what's wrong, God's obligated to judge. No, God's not obligated to do those things. God is angry at these men because they had distorted who he is. They have misrepresented God. They really don't know God at all. They have no sense of God's grace and compassion to people who are suffering unjustly. Look at chapter 42, verse 7. I'm going to read three verses here. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends because you've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls, seven rams, and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, Zophar the Namanite, did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The man they had criticized as a sinner was now the vessel God was using in their restoration. How humbling for these men to come to Job and go, we're wrong, you know. I love what Gerald Wilson says. The ultimate irony, the friend's restoration to God is dependent on the intercession of the one they had condemned as a sinner. You know, God was really vindicating Job there, isn't he? I think so. You know, God calls the words of Job's friends folly. That's a very strong term in the Old Testament. The word folly or fool is, you know, someone who speaks or does something that's morally wrong. It's someone who has rejected God or his ways. It's a willful thing. As Gerald Wilson says, the friends fall under the judgment of sin because they, they actually have a distorted worldview and use that worldview to condemn an innocent sufferer as a sinful person. Do you know we need to be very careful that we're not just professing a faith in God, but we have a wrong or distorted view of God. You know, I'm taking a, a theology of holiness class, very interesting. And one of the things it says in this class, to really develop in holiness, we have to have a right understanding of who the true God is and not create a God of our own invention. You know, a lot of people think they know who God is but it's a God of their own invention. You say, how do you know this, Pastor? Because you and I have to go back to the scriptures. God has revealed himself, but when you and I have a distorted view of God, we're misrepresenting God, and that's not a good thing, folks. So we need to get a right understanding of who he is. We must realize that some of God's precious people do suffer. David Atkinson says, bad things happen to good people. We must learn not to judge a, a person's spiritual standing according to his or her circumstances or fortunes. We are told to beware of the slick equation of blessing from God and life goes well. There can be a pain that heals and a closeness to God even when outer circumstances seem out of line. How many here can honestly say, that sometimes the closest moments in your life came when you felt like your whole life was falling apart and you were struggling and there was sorrow and difficulty and pain and you were in a state of confusion and yet God was the closest to you. You see, don't judge, you know, a, in a sense, a book by its cover, right? Don't make those assessments. That's what he's basically warning us of. And then it goes on to say, so what is meant in verse nine? You've not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Well, what was the difference between what Job said and what they had communicated? Well, Dr. Longman says, Job affirmed, sorry, God affirms Job's words but never validates Job's claim of being righteous. But I think it's even deeper than that. And I agree with John Walton when he says, you know, there are statements Job makes that are even wrong about God. Do you realize that? 
You know, if you read chapters uh, 30, verse 18 to 23, you know, Job is raising some serious questions about the validity of his characterization of God. He's basically saying, God's not being just to me. And so therefore, God is being unjust. He's, he's actually defaming God's character. Can't say that's right about what Job said about God, could you? Or how about chapter 31 when he's pleading his innocence and he's basically condemning God to prove that he's right? So what does he really mean when it says, as Job spoke about me? Well, it's simply this. Uh, John Walton says, Job believes that God is afflicting him without cause. That's found in chapter 9, verse 17. A belief that, affir- that God affirms is true in chapter 2, verse 3. You know, God was the one that was afflicting him because he said to Satan, you have caused me to raise my hand against my servant Job. This is a very important point. And if you read in chapter 42, you know, it even says this. Um, after, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes. And then it goes on to say, they comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him in verse 11. You know, a lot of time we attribute things to Satan. And we almost make Satan a co-equal to God. Can we stop doing that, please? Do you know nothing comes in your life without God knowing it? It's the truth. You need to see, you need to have a higher view of God and a lower view of the devil. I'm serious. We give him far more credit than what he's got coming to him. It's the truth. You know, Job spoke rightly. He said, hey, you know what? God was allowing these things to happen in my life. In contrast, Job's friends were claiming that God was afflicting Job with cause and pressed Job to confess his supposed crimes. You know, he basically, they were basically saying, Job, you're guilty of sin. And that was not right. See, that's the point that what the statement is saying. But let me move on to the final example of submission that brings about restoration. We'll look at what happens in Job's life. First of all, Job's attitude is transformed as he sees that he has unjustly accused God. He realizes that there is so much as a human that we do not understand. Life has mysteries beyond us. We must acknowledge God as God and accept that he knows what is best for our lives. We must see him as he really is, far more merciful and compassionate even though God allows moments of suffering and pain to come into our lives. Look at verse one of chapter 42. Job acknowledges God's wisdom and power. Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Secondly, Job admits that he really didn't understand the mysteries of God, verses three and four. God said, you, you know, God, uh, Job says, you asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? And Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Isn't that amazing? Job says, you know what? I opened my mouth and was talking about stuff. I was outside of my league. I had no idea what was going on. Isn't that true? Job didn't have a clue what was going on. Do you know God never explains to Job what's going on? God never tells him about that confrontation in the heavenly realms. He doesn't have a clue. And so God's basically saying, do you really know what's going on, Job? Job goes, I haven't got a clue. He finally admits he doesn't know. Since Job had such a powerful encounter with God, and by the way, this is so amazing. When you and I truly encounter God, we begin to see ourselves as we truly are. And Job saw himself as a person with a bad attitude. And what does he say? Look at verse four. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you're gonna answer me. God's saying this to Job. Then Job says, my ears have heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. He says, I've heard a lot of talk about you, God, but now I've experienced you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Amazing. So Job repents. 
God uses Job now as an instrument of reconciliation in the life of his friends. You know, it's amazing what happens when we get right with God. God starts using us to help other people get right with God. It's the truth. I love that. You know, when we enter into a satisfactory relationship with God, we can help other people enter into that relationship. Job was now able to intercede on behalf of friends who had treated him so poorly. You know, we can learn a lot from Job the way he responded to his friends. You know, how, how would you like to have people treat you the way these friends treated Job? And you know what Job does? He prays and forgives these guys for his behavior. But you know, Jesus points this out to us that this is the right approach to those who mistreat us. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27 and 28. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. What is God telling us? What is Jesus telling us? He's saying, show grace. Show grace to wicked people. Show grace to undeserving people. Show grace to people that hurt you. How many know that's not normal? How many know that that's how you overcome evil? You overcome evil by doing good. You know, why do, why do we do this? Listen to what Jesus concludes in chapter six, verse 35. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. What is God like? He's kind to the ungrateful. God is kind to the wicked. When you and I do the same thing, what is it? We become like him. He says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Folks, what am I saying to you tonight? When you and I understand God operates on the principle of grace, when you and I accept and respond to God's grace in our life, we become people of grace. But you know, when you and I don't experience grace, we don't understand grace. When we think it's a retribution thing, then we get really upset with people. We go, how come he's getting that? Then we become an elder brother. When God starts showing somebody grace, we're upset because you know what? They deserve punishment rather than forgiveness. Isn't that the truth? Come on now. What am I saying to us? We need to have a correct understanding of the gospel. We need to have a correct understanding as to the nature of God. We need to have a correct understanding as to how God is operating in the world so that you and I can operate like he does, full of grace. Notice here, God restores Job's family and friends to him. Verse 10, after Job prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. No, nothing happened to Job until he began to operate in grace. It's amazing what grace does. It's amazing as we submit to God how God could begin to really move into our lives. All of his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came to him and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him. And, he gave, and, each, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. Now you have to remember, these people had turned against him. Everybody had pushed Job out of their life, but all of a sudden, now there's a recognition. Hey, we're not doing right by Job. And all of a sudden, favor comes on Job's life. And all the people who had rejected him and walked away from him come back to him and begin to minister to him. Wow, is that amazing? Is that restoration or what? The shame and rejection is removed. Acceptance and consolation is given. Ultimately, God blesses his life to an even greater degree than before. Look at verse 12. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. You say, well, what's significant about that? You have to read chapter one. Job had half of that, 
But now at the end of his life, God gives him twice as much. Wow, this is amazing. Twice as much. When we compare that list of wealth, we see God doubles his wealth. And then we read that God gives Job a new family, verse 13. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. And some of us could say, yeah, well, he's not doubling his family. Listen to what Ray Stedman writes. But what about Job's children? You might think that since Job's seven sons and three daughters were killed, he'd receive double the number of children, right? 14 sons and six daughters. But no, when God restored Job, he gave him seven sons and three daughters. The same number of children Job had at the beginning. Why? Because Job still had seven sons and three daughters, but they were in heaven. Job hadn't truly lost his first 10 children, not in the same sense that he had lost his wealth and possessions. He was separated from them by death, but he would one day be reunited with them. Job's first 10 children were safe in the arms of the Lord. And now he had seven more sons and three more daughters. So God did double the number of Job's children. What is fascinating is that Job does something very unusual. Look at verse 15. Nowhere in all the land where they're found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. You have to understand something. This book is probably set. The story's probably set in the patriarchal time, back in the Abraham's days, okay? But listen to what's going on. People in those days, when they had sons to give their inheritance to, would only give it to their sons. They wouldn't give it to their daughters, Job did something unusual. Job did something out of the box. Job gave his daughters an inheritance along with their sons. That was really abnormal. Why did he do that? Here's what I think. Job had so experienced God's grace that he became a grace giver. He starts moving outside the realm of convention. I'm gonna suggest this thought to us tonight. When you and I experience grace, we move outside of the normal conventions. We become grace givers. How many know when you're a grace giver, most people go, I have never had anybody do this for me. See, we're doing things to people who don't deserve us doing things to people. We start operating like God. How many think that blows people out of the sockets? That blows people away. All of a sudden they're going, man, I've never had this experience before. You know, it's like what's walking up to somebody, it's a total stranger, you know, and we're a multimillionaire and we're writing checks for a million dollars and giving it away. People are going, why are you doing this for me? You know, because I want to. You know, you, you follow what I'm getting? So Job is really acting like God in so many ways here. I love it. And then finally it says Job is given an amazing lifespan. It says, after this, Job lived 140 years. So however long he had lived, some people believed it happened when he was about 70. Now he gets, you know, twice as many years. And it says, he saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man full of years. Remember now, in the book of Proverbs, it teaches that righteous people generally have a long life. And so Job now experiences God's favor and God's blessing and lives this amazing long life. Now that Job has seen God, he knows that a proper attitude and right behavior do not guarantee a good life. However, in the end of Job, it tells us that in his case, God decided to give to him everything back. Accordingly, Job and the readers of the story know that any good thing we experience now is not because we deserve it, but rather they are expressions of God's grace. So what are the, some of the lessons we can learn from this book? I love what John Walton says. He says, I'm not convinced that we should view suffering as God's will. 
By which I mean it is not his desire for us to suffer. God desires that we learn perseverance and wisdom and that we mature. Suffering is a part of the disorder of the world and God can still bring good out of that disorder. We should not think of suffering as God's way to teach us a lesson and that our continual suffering means we've not yet learned the intended lesson. How many people think this way? Yeah, and it's wrong. It's not how it works. It's not what God is doing. I'm trying to help us get out of that mindset. That's all part of this retribution theology. We need to be delivered from. You know, we should be hesitant to believe that we can identify reasons for sufferings or explanations for God's actions. Our job isn't to understand. Our job is to trust. You see, God, if God has to explain everything to us, where's the trust factor? You get what I'm saying? It's about us learning to trust that God is good and that God is loving and that God is gracious. And when we get that, it does something for us. So in light of the book of Job, and I love what John writes, he says the only acceptable elaboration would be this, that what God is trying to say is this. I'm God, and I care deeply, and I want you to trust me even when you don't understand Do you know the more we get to know what God is truly like, the easier it is to trust him. It's true. The more I get to know what God is really like, the easier it is for me to trust him. Let's stand. I don't know about you, but this has been such an amazing journey for me personally going through this book. You know, I have learned so much some of you, you know you, you know, you come here all the time. The more you, you know, when you, you know there's, there's a value in being faithful. You've been hearing sermon after sermon out of the book of Job. I had people say, Pastor, when is this ever going to end? I said, we'll get there. Folks, I got so excited this week. You know, I made myself finish the sermon. You know, it was a challenging week for me. You have no idea. But I made myself finish the sermon, and I got so excited when I saw what the book was really about. It's really about understanding that God is full of grace. It's really understanding how hardwired we are to this retribution idea. And so often we struggle with all kinds of things in our life. Isn't that true? We struggle with all kinds of things. We're upset. We're bad. You know, but what it is is we just don't understand how gracious God really is. And with every head bowed tonight, how many can honestly say, you know, Pastor, I felt tonight God was really speaking to me. I I can understand now. I am hardwired this way. I just find myself automatically defaulting to this thing. And yet what I'm hearing tonight is that God loves me and that God is so gracious to me. You know, think about it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Could you understand tonight, if you and I had a revelation of God's grace, how that would change us? How many get a feeling this could change me? Anybody get a feeling this could change your life? That if you and I could really grasp the grace of God and how much he is coming to you with grace tonight. He's not just treating you based on what you've done. That's the way everybody treats us. Isn't that the way it is? You know, if I'm good, that's great. But if I'm bad, that's not so good. But tonight... You know, I think it's so important that we say, God, what I need above everything else is a new revelation 
of your grace in my life. I need you to break into these places in my soul that grace needs to touch. You know why I'm saying this? So that I can experience grace to its fullest. That I can actually begin to become a channel of God's grace. You see, the Christian life is not about us doing all the right thing. You know, that's what we try to tell our kids, you know. We're constantly harping on our kids. You gotta do this because it's the right thing to do. Yeah, it is the right thing to do, but the motivation has to be right. And I'm telling you, when you experience grace, then you start living out of grace. You start living out of gratitude. You start responding like your Father in heaven. You've experienced grace, and so now you're just, you know, a channel of that grace. And how many think that's the message that God wants to bring to our world? He wants you and I to convey that message by our lives. And so it delivers us from being that elder brother who's so critical of that prodigal son. Isn't that true? Isn't that true? Look at the father. He's running to show grace. The elder brother was living in the father's house and never understood grace because he could criticize what the father had done. One of the tragedies is that we can be spiritual and religious and we can actually be far away from God. The elder brother was just as far from God as the son who was the prodigal. Isn't that true? He was just, actually it was worse because he was right there next to the father, but he never got the father. He never understood the father. He never understood grace. Are you guys getting it tonight? Let me pray. How many here say, Pastor, I need a revelation of God's grace. That's me tonight. Just raise your hand. I want to experience it. I want to experience it to the ultimate degree in my life. I want to be a conduit of God's grace. I want it to change me. I want it to, I want it to get to an understanding that everything God's done for me, it's undeserved. I'm a, I'm, an ex, I'm, I'm a person that's experiencing grace. And Lord, today I want to be a channel of it. Lord, I pray to that end that you will make this real in our lives. That this principle will transform us, oh God. This is a principle that releases us from the power of sin. Grace, grace, wonderful grace. Grace that is greater than all my sin. Lord, I pray tonight, break the shackles in our soul. Deliver us, oh God, I pray. May we experience your grace in such an amazing way. Lord, I, I don't believe grace is gonna cause us to live a, a, a sinful life. I don't believe it's gonna cause us to live a, a loose life. I believe that when we really experience grace, it's gonna so change our hearts. It's gonna so fill us with gratitude. It's gonna so motivate us. It's gonna so infuel us. It's gonna so give us passion, oh God, that all we can do is begin to show it that we can begin to express it. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave tonight.